This is Cross Hope with Randy Snyder. Cross Hope is broadcast daily and shares five minutes of hope and encouragement from the Word of God. Our companion website is www.crosshope.org. Now with today's uplifting message, here's Randy. Richard Neal Donovan was a minister that went to Manhattan Christian College, one of our schools in Kansas. He died in January. I didn't know that he died. I just found out. You find out about people you know and or knew of by looking on the internet, and he died in January. But he said something in a message that was powerful. He said, I was working with a contractor, a building contractor, who said, I'll see you tomorrow, Richard. I have to oversee a foundation that we are pouring for a new home. I have learned over the years, if you get the foundation right, the rest of the house will go well. Isn't that an interesting statement? If you get the foundation right, the rest of the house will go well. But if you get the foundation wrong, you'll never recover. You'll never recover. I'm going to talk to you about the foundational teaching, I think, of Christianity after the death of Christ and his resurrection is the word forgiveness. Forgiveness has more to do with your mental wholeness than anything else. Some of you didn't hear that. I'm going to say it again. Forgiveness has more to do with your mental wholeness and my mental wholeness than you care to know or admit. I'm going to tell a story that I have never told before. I've never used. I'd heard this story years ago, told by Charles Stanley years ago, but then embellished by a minister from Washington State by the name of Kevin Krell, K-R-E-L-L. It's just an unbelievable, unbelievable story about forgiveness. And it's just done more for me than anything to do to tell me about forgiveness. Here's what I'm going to have to read it. It's so involved. This is not a gut-wrenching story. It's not going to cause you to get a handkerchief out and wipe away a tear, but it's really powerful. He said, I knew a Christian college professor who used to drive home the point about forgiveness with his final exam. And I guess he did it year after year. Maybe you've heard about it. Before giving the exam, he told the students to read the entire exam carefully before they began answering the questions. He also had these same instructions written on the top of the exam. Then he handed out the exam. It was impossibly hard. As the students read through the exam with its difficult questions, you could hear them groaning. The exam seemed impossible to pass. But on the last page, there was this note. You have a choice. You can either complete the exam as given or sign your name at the bottom of the page and in so doing, receive an A for this assignment. Wow, the students sat there stunned each year. Was he serious? Just sign it and get an A? Slowly, it dawned on the students, so one by one, they signed the exam, turned it in, and filed out. It took most of the rest of the afternoon for students to get over what they just had happened in their lives. Some of them secretly came back to the professor's office to ask him if he was really serious. Later on, the professor in a follow-up class would tell the class different reactions he'd received through the years. And the story vividly illustrates, Richard Krell, or Kevin Krell says, what people's reaction to God's solution to sin. 
Many are like the first group. They spend their lives trying to earn what they discover years later was freely offered to them. They spend years sweating it out, always wondering if God is listening to their pleas for forgiveness, always wondering if they finally pushed Him too far. Well, folks, I personally believe this may be one of the most important messages out of the book of Ephesians 2, 12-14. That's crosshope.org, crosshope.org. I'm convinced that in the United States of America, because that's where I live and where you live, people wonder all the time, is God really going to forgive me? Is God really going to forgive me? And what I tell them is a word that begins with the letter C. It's right behind me. It's the cross. Look at the cross and then tell me that you don't believe God can forgive you. And when people think through the cross, they realize they realize that we have been forgiven. I'm going to talk only about two words today. But they're two words that have shaped and misshaped your life. Would you listen to that again? Two words that have shaped your life, and for some of you, it's misshaping your life. Here they are. The word peace, P-E-A-C-E, and the word hostility. The Lord Jesus Christ came to bring peace to your life, and I'm going to redefine peace. It's not what you think it is. And then he came to break down the wall of hostility in your life with other people and with him. I'm going to redefine hostility. And so you're going to go home today with a new definition of two words, peace and hostility. We're in the book of Ephesians. We're in the second chapter. We're picking it up at verse 12. Paul is speaking to Gentiles, in this case here, non-Jews. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. When? Before they came to Christ. Excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. And the saddest phrase in all the Bible, without hope and without God in this world. Some of you know men in your family, women in your family, without hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Your life and my life is either marked by peace or it's marked by hostility, or some people, maybe both. You know, I'm going to define the word peace for you because most people think that peace has to do with the cessation of strife. I asked a man one time, and I literally had this conversation. I'm not making this up. I knew there'd been some problems with his brother years earlier. And I said, are you getting along with your brother? Have you had some strife with him? He said, oh, we haven't had a fight in years. And I said, well, that's great. I said, have you talked to him lately? We haven't talked in years. You get the point. They didn't have strife, but they had no contact. And here's the definition you need to write down in your heart if you don't write it down in your notes. Peace doesn't just mean the cessation of strife. It means oneness, coming together with somebody. When you have true peace with the Lord, you become one with Him. When you have true peace in a marriage, you become one because there's a togetherness that wasn't there before or can be recreated and brought back by the power of God. I believe that with all my heart. 
So peace has to do with coming together and being reunited. Now, you ready for the other one? Hostility is not just strife. Hostility is not just angry. You can be angry at people you love. Let me say that again. You can be angry at the people you love. Anybody married in this room? Anybody? You can be angry at the people you love. Here's hostility, and this is a scary definition. Hostility is when you treat other people like the enemy. We'll fill out that comment tomorrow on Crossover. Our website, of course, is crossover.org. Here's hostility, and this is a scary definition. Hostility is when you treat other people like the enemy. Hostility is when you treat the other person in your family. There are husbands who treat their wives like the enemy. There are wives who treat their husbands like the enemy. There are parents who treat their children as the enemy, and children who look at their parents as the enemy. And brothers and sisters, and it goes on and on. Who have been the enemies in your life? Does that speak to anyone? We can treat other people in the body of Christ as enemies, according to Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll wrote this years ago, but it still has power. The Jews and the Gentiles were definitely divided by rules and regulations. Special days, holidays, the the rite of circumcision, which I'm not going to get into, was a big deal that Abraham started with Isaac. And that was a dividing line with many people. And to be of the circumcision or not of the circumcision had all kinds of implications. But here's what Chuck Swindoll says we have going on today. We don't struggle with those kinds of things in the church today, right? We're past all this rule keeping, right? Or are we? When we examine the life of church today, it's like looking in a mirror. We have conflicts between church groups. We have disunity between Christians and non-Christians, and even with churches full of Christians. The issue is not any longer circumcision or access to the covenants of promise. Churches have split over music. How music is played or what kind of instruments are used to play the music. Churches have split over what sort of ministries and programs a church should have. Who should lead them and who should attend them. Churches are split over dress codes. Should people wear shorts and t-shirts or three-piece suits? Should women wear full-length dresses or allowed to wear skirts or pants? Churches have split over anything. David and I both can tell you of things we know that have split churches. Your first reaction is to laugh, and then somebody tell me what your second reaction is. To cry. Your first reaction is to laugh. The second reaction is to cry when you realize People are actually dividing over these issues. I have a minister that I knew. He was riding with a friend, and a police car pulled up behind them. Lights on. They both looked at each other. What do we do? We're, We're going the speed limit. We weren't doing anything wrong. But he said, I have to be honest with you. Instant hostility and fear filled our minds. As it turned out, the policemen who pulled us over, there were actually two in the car, 
were just trying to tell us that the license plate in the back was coming off the truck. It was just hanging by one screw. One police officer came to my side of the truck, the minister said, and he put out his hand and he said, I thought he wanted to see my deed. He was just wanting to shake my hand. I was in your church recently, enjoyed your message. And so here, this minister admits, here I, I was tensed up and what are they stopping us for? And he was getting mad. And all they wanted to do is say, hey, you need to correct a license plate issue. And that's all. And by the way, I enjoyed your message a few Sundays ago. God bless you. I think you know where I'm going with that. When have you created hostility in your life toward another person? And you realize it wasn't merited. We create hostility with other people that they don't deserve and you don't deserve. And people have done it with you where they've created hostility. I want to talk to you about the power of hostility in a person's life. It's actually kind of frightening because it's a true story told by Philip Yancey, an author that some of you may be familiar with. He writes of a friend of his who was in a marriage that was choked by hostility. The husband and wife just simply put, fought all the time, all the time. It never stopped. One night, he said, my friend reached the breaking point, and he yelled out at his wife, I hate you. Pretty strong when you say that to the person you're married to. I hate you. I won't take it anymore. I've had enough. I won't go on. I won't let this happen. No, no, no. Those were the words that he said in anger. Now, you ready for a shocker? Several months later, this man woke up in the middle of the night to strange sounds coming from the room of a three-year-old son. He walked down the hall and he stopped by his son's door. What he heard sent shivers down his spine and took away his breath. Inside, his son was repeating in soft voice with precisely the same inflection and intonation he'd heard from his dad. He said, I hate you, and I won't take it anymore. I hate you, and I won't take it anymore. That's a dramatic, graphic story of how hostility, treating the other person like the enemy, is contagious and picked up, in words at least, by a three-year-old kid. What does that say about what's going on and has gone on in your life and my life? Anger and hostility will do more damage in your life than you're willing to admit. I don't know if you're willing to admit that or not, but I am. Think of all the damage that's been done in your life by anger and hostility. I'm going to tell you a story that I apologize. I'm pretty sure I've told it here before. Don't anybody nod. Yeah, you did tell this story, pal. I don't want to hear it. I don't, I don't even want to know it, but I'm going to tell it anyway. But it's, it's one of the top stories I know about taking down the walls of hostility. You know, Jesus took down the wall of hostility in a literal way, in a figurative way. Did you know the Bible says in the New Testament, you can read this in the Gospels, that the curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies was rent in two miraculously at the death of Christ because that's the barrier was taken down, the separation of the holy place from the holy of holies. You can read about it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But I want to talk about walls coming down in a more personal way. 
everybody in this room has a wall with somebody. You don't have to nod. You don't have to raise your hand, but you know what I'm talking about. You've got a wall of hostility with a person, a friend, a relative, a coworker, a fellow student. It doesn't matter. It, it's, it's real in everybody's lives. And you can think of one, two, or three, or more. We're not limited, you know, to just one person like that. It's a story told by Rita Snowden. Rita Snowden was a great author, wrote numbers of books before, oh, before World War II. So this is a story out of World War I. It has to be because all her books, I think, were written in the 30s. She writes a story about a group of British soldiers who had the body of their sergeant, and they went to a Catholic church to ask the priest in France, may we bury our sergeant in your cemetery? Well, folks, one of the most powerful stories I've ever told We'll continue tomorrow on crosshope.org. She writes a story about a group of British soldiers who had the body of their sergeant, and they went to a Catholic church to ask the priest in France, may we bury our sergeant in your cemetery? He's, we're shipping out in a few days, and we just want to bury, give him a Christian burial. And the priest was very gracious to them, and he said this, I, I would love to bury him in our cemetery, but I have rules that I have to follow. And I just need to know, is he a baptized adherent to the Roman Catholic faith? And the soldiers looked at one another. We don't know what he is. We, we know he is a believer in Jesus and that he would want a Christian burial. And so they, the priest said, look, here, I, I can't help you. I can't bury him inside the cemetery. But he pointed to a corner of the cemetery, and he said, just outside the fence of the cemetery, why don't you bury him there, just outside the fence? And those of you that heard this story know where this is going. They did. They took him out to the corner Outside the fence, you know, maybe just a foot or two from the fence of the cemetery, dug a grave and buried their friend, had a, a word of prayer and a committal type service to the best of their ability, and they left. Now, that's not the end of the story. This is the powerful part of the story. Before they shipped out, two or three of the soldiers came back to, to pay their final respects to their sergeant that they loved and respected, and they couldn't find a grave. They walked around the whole grave and they said, we can't find it. a grave looks fresh for weeks. Believe me, you dig a grave, it'll still be there. The, the obvious destruction of the ground, etc. So the priest saw them. They said, we can't find his grave. We just buried him outside the fence. And some of you know where this is going. The priest said, gentlemen, I was so convicted. I was so convicted by telling you that you couldn't bury him inside the fence that I went out one day and I moved the fence. I took down the fence in that corner and I repositioned it to include the body of your sergeant. That's what love does. Love takes down fences. And my point in telling that story is that somebody in this room today can think of somebody in your life 
where you need to go out to the cemetery, figuratively speaking, and you need to take down two corners of a fence and reposition them and include the person in your life who's been discouraged from coming into your life by a wall of hostility. Jesus Christ came to bring peace into my life and yours, union to come together, and he came to take down the wall of hostility. Now, I'm going to really be personal here, really be personal. Some of you are thinking, well, that's great, Randy, but the person I've got a wall with is dead. What do I do about that? You can. I believe you can go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I've had a wall of hostility with mom or dad or with a brother or sister, and they're now gone. But in the name of Christ, in the power of Christ, in the name of Christ, I take down the wall of hostility. And you know what will happen? God will honor that. Lives are damaged for generations. And you say, how do you know that? Because I talk to people every day, every day on the phone, every day in person. And people will talk about a wall of hostility that was up with a dad who died 20 years ago. And you know what they talk about? The wall's still up. And I challenge them, you can take it down in the name of Christ. You've been listening to Cross Hope with Randy Snyder. For more information about this ministry or to re-listen to any message heard on this broadcast, go to our website at crosshope.org. Be sure to join us at this same time each weekday or listen at www.crosshope.org. Cross Hope is listener-supported and is produced by Cross Hope Ministries, Incorporated.